You're listening to The Currency. Welcome. I'm Mike Gast, and I'm your host. Glad to have you guys along on a windy Friday night in Charleston, South Carolina. Hope you guys are doing great. This is episode number 140 of the podcast, 140. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the final episode of Eric Vogelin's The New Science of Politics. Uh, If you've been with me, this has been a year-long escapade. This is episode number six of that whole, this is kind of number six in the series, episode number 140. It's been long. I kicked it off January 20-something, the 24th, the 23rd, the 27th, don't remember. Here we are, January 12th, and I'm finally getting this last one recorded. Uh, Anyone that has listened before knows that I've said this has been an ill-fated journey and uh, looking forward to getting it completed. Now, I don't want to have a bad attitude. So if you're listening, you're like, oh, well, why should I listen if you just want to get this over with? Guys, it's going to be filled, chock full of uh, entertainment, laughs, uh, insights. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. Best podcast ever. (laughs) I want to get right into it today. Um, Vogelin wraps up his his series of talks. The book, for those of you that, that don't know, is really based on a series of talks he gave back in 1950 or 51, I forget exactly. And these talks were then translated, kind of, um, you know, transcribed, transposed, whatever you would say, into this book, really phenomenal book. I mean, it just, I mean, you know, I, I can't do it justice. And that's the reason that this is bad radio. It's not that the, that the content, the source material is bad. It's fantastic. Yet at the same time, I'm just not the right guy to do it justice. But Vogelin brings it all together in this last chapter. Now, we've been talking about this long process of, you know, what is representative government? The idea that a government, there are three types of representation. We tend to think of representation as democracy, like, you know, you're representing me. I have a representative um, in, you know, from my district that's in the government representing me. Vogelin's saying, no, that's that, that is not quite the concept of representation. There are three kinds of representation. There are, there are governments, societies that represent the cosmological truth of the universe. You know, if, so if you believe that there's a God in heaven and that he reigns a certain way, you're trying to model your society around that reality to reflect it, be, to become a microcosm of this greater truth. That's one. The second type of representation representative government is a government that represents the truth of men's souls, anthropomorphic. You know, so what does a good man look like? What is the ideal man? And we're talking about human beings here, not just physical, uh, the sex male, mankind. Um, and how do you order your society around these ideal men? What does this look like? What are the virtues? And how do you model a society around the truth of men's souls? Not necessarily the negative aspects of men's souls, just the truth of men's souls. And then lastly, you have this soteriological representation, this idea that uh, what must we do to be saved? How does salvation come? And societies that represent the soteriological truth. Uh, and so you have these different kinds of representative governments. And Vogelin talks about the fact that you've got these different approaches that they evolve over time, but you have these societies that have essentially been divinized the whole time, meaning they didn't have this bifurcation, this separation of secular and sacred. You know, we tend to think of, well, that's just secular. And this over here, that's religious stuff. That's different. We, 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 we kind of separate the material world from the transcendent, the metaphysical world. And a lot of people don't even believe in the spiritual world. They're just like, well, it doesn't exist. I only believe in what's empirical, what's natural, what's material, which can be measured, you know, through scientific means. But in the past, uh, societies didn't do that. The, the societies were, were, um, were very compressed. Every, everything was intermingled. Everything was a part of a whole. So you didn't separate sacred and, and secular, sacred and profane. Everything you did had a sacred aspect to it. Everything you did could anger the gods or could please them, was at the mercy of the gods. 
Uh, your, your leadership, your, your rulers were embodiments of gods on earth. They had divine authority and power and so on. And you had cults around that. You know, you'd have a cult to the, a cult of the emperor. You'd worship the emperor as a god, and, and he would reign as a god. And uh, you, you had this very kind of compact approach. There was no separation. There was no priest over here and, and a king over there, you know, pope and a king, and they divided up, you know, earthly temporal power versus uh, spiritual... Uh, soteriological power, salvific power, theological power. But the Christian religion came along, Christianity came along and, and blew that to smithereens. And you got this de-divinization, de-divinization. Am I adding an extra syllable in there? I'm always asking about my pronunciations. This is the problem uh, when you talk to yourself in your head. I need to hang out with a bunch of people that use words like de-divinization and concretize, you know, and that way I can make sure I say things properly because they'll laugh at me if I don't say it right. And you just need to be laughed at once and you get it right all the time after that. <laughs> Either that or you, you're too fearful to speak and you just hold your peace all the time, which, you know, I'm too stupid to hold my peace, obviously, or I wouldn't have a podcast. Now, by the way, what a life I live. I mean, it's Friday night. It's about eight o'clock Friday night and I'm making a podcast. I mean, how cool is that? I'm like the coolest, sexiest guy, you know, because who else is hanging out making a podcast on Friday night? Oh my gosh. Uh, and I thought I was a nerd when I was a kid. It only gets worse, ladies and gentlemen. There is no hope. <laughs> Oh, my word. I guess the great thing, the liberating thing as you get older is you don't care. Like, I love this. I, I made a comment, I think, in the last podcast how it was New Year's Eve. Everybody was out partying, and I was thrilled to be in my gym jams, my pajamas, sitting on the living room couch reading a book. It was just like the nicest feeling. <laughs> so, yeah, those small pleasures in life, you learn to embrace them. But Christianity came along and you had this de-divinization. All of a sudden, you know, Caesar was not a god. The emperor was not a god. God reigned on high, transcendent, and the, the, the earth and everything within it was material. And it wasn't superstitious anymore. It wasn't filled with, you know, goblins and spirits and so on. Your ancestors weren't going to get you if you did things the wrong way. There was a god in heaven. I mean, you didn't lose spirituality. But you got a more of a dualistic kind of worldview. Uh, you see this in St. Augustine's, the, uh, uh, what is it, the, the city of God? You know, he has this, this kind of metaphor of um, the two cities. You know, there's the God, the, the spiritual city and the earthly city. And uh, that was a metaphor for the world we lived in. And you started to see power become bifurcated, if you will, where the king had temporal power, civil power. Uh, the Pope then had spiritual power over eternal life and matters of the church. And these things were separated. Vogel makes the argument that by doing that, by de-divinizing society, you know, you, you had this transformation, the individual becomes more ascendant, uh, representation takes on other meanings, etc. But there's this hunger to re-divinize society. Because there's an aspect to life uh, that, that, that we want to be involved in the divine. And as a society, as a group, as a larger culture, as a nation, as a people, there's this hunger for that. Now, what happens with the de-divinization under Christianity is, well, there's the promise that Christ is returning and he'll establish his kingdom. And that kingdom, uh, that emanatization of the eschaton... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the coming of Christ and the establishment of his church, his kingdom, is that re-divinization. It doesn't re-divinize the existing. It replaces everything with a truly divinized kingdom. And this government that he brings is truly not just representative of the cosmos. It is the truth and the reality of the cosmos come to earth. So Christ reigns not as a representation, almost as a microcosm of the greater reality, but as the reality itself come to earth. He is that king. He is that Lord. He has all power, all glory, all authority has been given to him. So this is not some earthly king 
modeling the reality of the cosmos, the reality of the ideal man, the reality of salvation, all these three things that these various governments represent. And I should point out that a soteriological representation doesn't have to be a Christian one. You can have governments that represent different ideas of how salvation happens. But the idea here is that you have cosmological truth, anthropological truth, and soteriological truth all come together in Christ, not as a representation, but a manifestation of of the actuality, the reality of it. This is the fulfillment of all these representative, sorry, representative government types in the kingdom of Christ. And so when you de-divinize civilization, you say a, a government, a society, it was in the hopes, in the, in the kind of expectation that Christ would come and fulfill all these things. So no, Caesar, you are not the fulfillment of the promise. You know, no, King Henry, you are not the fulfillment that God promises us. We're waiting for this thing to come. And the problem that you run into, and I am a believer, I'm the, I don't mean a problem like, and this is what undermines Christianity, but the problem that you run into is this happened well over a thousand years ago in ancient Rome, well over a thousand years ago. I mean, Christ walked the earth over 2,000 years ago. But what happens is Christ doesn't return. The expectation he's coming back and he doesn't. And what do you do with this? Now, we're not going to get into the theology. There are different ways. There's millennial, amillennial, premillennial, all this. There are different theological takes. There are um, dispensational views. Uh, there are all these different ways of trying to make sense out of our current state and the past history. I'm not going to get into all that because that just it just goes down a whole rabbit trail, and that's that's a whole series of podcasts that I'm again not equipped and and probably not well suited to to do. At least not as a series. We can definitely talk about these things. But when Christ doesn't return, it creates a sense of crisis because you have this de-divinized society. You have this separation of temporal and spiritual authority in your pope and your king. And you have a world that's changing where the power of the church is waning. It's diminishing the hold of the church, the, the, the material world is, you know, you have the enlightenment, you know, things that you have, you have this um, new conception of science where it becomes much more empirical. It's not just rationality and reason and logic. The science of, say, Aristotle and Plato, where they use their mind to think through problems, philosophy and so on. Philosophy being the queen of science, the queen of the sciences. Uh, you, you know, don't tell a scientist that today, by the way. Scientists know nothing about philosophy. And actually, modern-day philosophy is just devoid of anything useful. It's become very technical. and, and it's, but, but if you look at classic, classical ph- philosophy as it was practiced, the queen of science was the rigorous and, and um, fruitful thought that was applied to the challenges, problems, and questions of the human existence. So, so you have this, you have this de-divinized society waiting for Christ to return. You have this waning church, its power, influence, and authority waning, and you have this ascendant, this waxing world of materialist, materialistic. And when I say materialistic, I don't mean in the sense of acquisitive, like I want to get a new BMW or Mercedes, just very, a very material, naturalistic view of the world, this enlightenment-driven, science-focused material world that says, you know, the worldview says, well, there, I don't believe in anything that doesn't exist outside of, you know, science. If you can't empirically prove it, if it can't be measured somehow, if it can't be... Uh, engage through the senses, taste, touch, smell, so on, then I don't believe in it. Because if you can't prove it to me scientifically, then to me it doesn't exist. And so you have this growing worldview that's very materialistic, that rejects, that, that's cynical, that questions the church. You have it, it really becomes the modern world. 
And with the modern world, modern world comes a hermeneutic of suspicion, which eventually becomes, kind of gives birth to postmodernism, this idea that we can't trust anything, that we're cynical, that we're, you know, everything, you know, there's got to be something up, this has got to be a scam, this has to be a conspiracy, that guy's successful, he must be doing something that, you know, is bad. It's a hermeneutic of suspicion, out goes beauty, out goes goodness, trust. So you have this world, this growing kind of gulf between the spiritual world becoming kind of weaker on the, on the world stage. I don't mean to say the spiritual world itself is becoming weaker, just that man's perception, man's worldview is diminishing, is pushing this thing to the side in this ascendant material world. But all through that, mankind still hungers for heaven. We hunger for, etern- for eternity. We hunger for perfection. We hunger for things to be good and to be right. We don't understand why there is pain and suffering and death and sickness. We don't understand why there are unfair things and immoral things, why people, why good people, good, hardworking people can't get ahead can't feed their families, why they watch their children languish in poverty and sickness, why it seems that those that are nasty and wicked and evil seem to thrive and flourish, and those that are good seem to be under the boot, under the heel. And so there's this hunger, there's this desire. And it's not just for the inequities that people are seeing. I'm just saying that there's this desire for heaven, for perfection, for things to become good. Essentially, there's a desire, this deep, inculcated drive, a hunger to re-divinize society. It's been de-divinized by Christianity. There's a promise that Christ will return. He doesn't return. It's almost like God makes the promise to Abraham, I will give you a son. And Sarah and Abraham kind of laugh, you know, Sarah laughs. What am I going to have a baby at 99 years old? God promises a miracle that seems impossible by natural standards. And there's skepticism. And then there's waiting. And it's just not happening. And so what does Sarah suggest? And Sarah and Abraham do. They're like, well, let's bring it about ourselves. God made the promise. We don't have an, we don't have an heir. He promised us an heir, a son. We have no children. So let's make it happen. Have, you know, take my handmaiden, Hagar, lie with her, and uh, let's produce for ourselves through our own means a son. And that son, Ishmael, uh, becomes the root of a problem between nations for generations, thousands of years of conflict between Ishmael and eventually the, the, the true heir that God promised that Sarah bore, Isaac. You have two nations. This is the kind of uh, origin story of two nations battling with each other. And we see it today in the Israeli-Palestinian war right now. So when you look at society, you see that God has said, my son, Christ, will return and he will bring the fullness, the fulfillment of representation. He will bring, he'll replace representation with the actual thing, cosmological, anthropological, and soteriological truth. And mankind's like, hey, look, it's a thousand, it's 1500 years, it's not happening. And so there's this drive in society because mankind wants, we hunger for eternity, so this is a drive for ourselves to amanitize the eschaton. <laughs> Forgive me for you. But that was, uh, Vogelin was, I think, the guy that popularized that phrase, amanitizing the eschaton, which means let's bring about, you know, this end time, this fulfillment. Let's make it real on earth. And um, what was his name? The guy that founded, uh, kind of, he, uh, William, William F. Buckley Jr., 
who kind of revived conservatism in America. And he was the founder, he was the founder of what magazine? Oh, it's not the New Republic, because that's a liberal magazine, but there was a there was a conservative magazine that he was the founder of. But anyway, I remember Buckley used to say, do not amanitize the eschaton. Like that was just a phrase. So he obviously was a reader of Vogelin, kind of understand what it meant. But there was this drive to amanitize the eschaton. We hunger for heaven. There's this promise to mankind. We will bring it about ourselves. They can't help themselves. And this, my friends, is Gnosticism. Through secret knowledge, through through our own knowledge, through our own understanding, through our, our scientific inquiries and discoveries, and by the by the strength of our intellect and our in our cleverness and our and our ability to bring to heal this the and reveal, to uncover, to discover, uncover, and then harness the secrets of this universe, we will create a heaven on earth. You get these different scientific movements, you get you know, uh, compt, uh, positivism, uh, you get scientism, you get progressivism, but these are all forms of Gnosticism, this idea that through various ingenuities, science, et cetera, of mankind, that we can bring about heaven on earth. And so you even, and it really manifests itself in Marxism. You know, Marx comes up with this, we can create the perfect eternal society Marx, influenced by Hegel, uh, we can bring about this perfect eternal society through Marxism, through, through global communism, centralized government founded on science and logic and reason and ration. It's so funny, too, because you, you read some of the, the, the Russian writers during the Soviet era, during the Bolshevik era, during the Stalinist era, uh, I think it's like Solzhenitsyn, and and you read the stories about how proud they were of their scientific ingenuity and how the Marxist socialist Soviet way uh, was really like the the pinnacle of human thought and ingenuity, and yet the i the ideology was so warped and so and we're going to touch on this if I remember towards the end about reality and one of the the two fatal flaws of Gnosticism, but like they were wrong in what they thought and they just were forcing everything. It's like well we know this and we know that thus this plus that thus it must be that and it's everybody just had to repeat the party line, but it was clearly idiocy. But because it was scientific, they were so proud of the, like, the new methods that we're discovering. You know, you look at their farming, you look at all this stuff. I mean, people starved to death. People were murdered, butchered. I mean, it was just a hell on earth. But Marxism is a Gnostic movement. It's, the, it's a more modern manifestation of Gnosticism. Now, in the last episode that I talked about this, we, we covered, which is what Vogelin covers, uh, the Puritan movement in England in the 1600s. This would have been during the English Civil Wars, uh, during Cromwell's uh, parliament, and the, the overthrow of the monarchy. But the Puritans were also a Gnostic movement of the time. They want to set up this government that, that you know, was kind of like a heaven on earth based on Christian principles. And Vogelin talks about why that was a flawed effort, why it was Gnostic and her- heretical, etc. Not going to get into that. You can listen to that episode. Um, but... What we find is more modern implementations, I'll say, of Gnosticism. Uh, they tend to be more radical. And, and it really, they become very hostile to Christianity. So the interesting thing about, um, you know, when you're trying to manatize the Christian eschaton, when you're trying to bring about this heaven on earth, but you've rejected Christianity, you're looking really for a civil religion. You know, if Christianity used to be your civil religion, the, the religion that tied your society together. And you're in these societies that are saying, well, we've rejected that. We're materialists. There is no God. Thank you, Nietzsche. God is dead, or Nisha, or however you say his name. Um you need a civil religion. You need something to pull people together. Even uh, you know, Robespierre and and uh, Rousseau, was it Rousseau? 
I don't remember, uh, the, the French revolution. I mean, they, you know, they had to set, they also, they realized like we got rid of all this stuff. We got rid of the monarchy and we've been killing people left and right. You know, it's this wonderful revolution. We're creating the new society, but they needed a civil religion to pull everybody together. Uh, it was very cultic, uh, not occultic, but it was very cultic civil religion. And they had these night terrors where they would go and purge. They just drag people out and kill them. Uh, it was horrible. Uh, so, so you need a civil religion to draw, to pull your country together. And this Gnostic movement becomes the civil religion of, of the society. Now, what ends up happening is Gnosticism leads to totalitarian government. And here's why. In a pluralistic society, you can believe what you believe and I can believe what I believe because the society is not driven by trying to create heaven on earth. We don't have to agree for the society to work. If the society is trying to represent heaven on earth, the society is trying to create an eternal society of perfection, the only way that you can do that is to get everybody to agree. Now, put five or ten people in a room and try to get them to agree on anything. It's impossible. Just five to ten people. So imagine a society of thousands, hundreds of thousands, of millions and in this society, in this world we live in now, we have societies of over a billion people. I think of China or India. It's massive. There's no way to get everybody to agree. They can't agree on what is true. They can't agree on what is good and right. They all have competing interests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the only way to make this fair and good and right for everybody is to force everybody to behave certain ways, to think certain ways, to live certain ways. Well, that's totalitarianism. This is where the government has to get involved in every aspect of your life because the government needs you to conform to the vision and to the behaviors and ideologies and actions necessary to deliver on this heaven on earth, this, this secular heaven on earth. People don't understand why the government's like, you know, you look at Marxism, they tried to control everything in the Soviet Union. They tried to control everything in communist China. And China's, you know, got the technology. I mean, you look at the Soviet Union back early 1900s, I think the Bolshevik Revolution was what, like 1918, 17, 18, 19, somewhere around there. You know, and it went all the way through into the 70s, 80s, and 90s with the fall of the Berlin Wall. But, you know, they didn't have the kind of technology that we have now. So they could, you know, they could tap phone lines eventually and they had KGB agents in, in Russia and, and all that stuff. I mean, they could keep an eye on you and, you know, your family could narc you out. So, you know, you, you read, you're keeping a Bible in the house and your 17-year-old son who's pissed off at you because you're his father, right? Because <laughs> that's what 17-year-old sons do, uh, some of them. Uh, he might just out of rebellion and anger and wanting to be regarded uh, in society to be, you know, lauded and, and celebrated might rat you out. Like what a patriotic man you are. And, you know, you shame on your parents and you don't need them. And, you know, off they go to the gulag. So that's what they relied on. They didn't have smartphones. They couldn't listen to every word. Like right now I'm recording this. My iPhone is within hand's reach on the desk. And I hate to admit this, but I'm sure it's listening to me. We, we all know this. I mean, we're being monitored. Everything we say and do is being monitored. You know, if I've got that cell phone with me, then any entity that has access can know where I am at any given time because these things are trackable. And it goes on and on. And you see the society start to do things like ratchet down on things like cash purchases and how much cash you're allowed to have on hand. And, you know, the bank has to let, you know, the government know if you make deposits over a certain size. I mean, this is, you know, I, I'm kind of laughing a little bit, but this is real. This is like, it's already happened. It's not like, oh, guys, this is coming. It's happened. They just keep ratcheting down on this stuff. And we're just like, well, I don't, I don't really like it, but, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't have anything to worry about. But this is where a Gnostic society, a society trying to create a heaven on earth, gains and asserts control over every aspect of its citizens' lives. And this is what we're experiencing, not just in America, but across the globe. 
But Marxism in China and in Russia and now in, in North Korea and at the time Vietnam, uh, the, the, this is what that looked like and this is what they were trying for. Marxism isn't just an economic system applied to a country. It's not just a political system, socialism, et cetera, applied to a country. Marxism, yes, is very economic in its orientation and economic in its theories and economic in its language. But what it's essentially saying is economics is a social science. Here we go. You know, the empirical, the scientific. And other social sciences is probably one of the most rigorous because there's actual numbers, et cetera, that you can deal with as opposed to, let's say, like sociology, which is, you know, kind of a science. Okay. But um, economics is just the language that Marx is using because the lens that he looks through, he thinks that human beings are you know, like an Adam Smith kind of model, they're mainly economic beings, always seeking to maximize their utility. And if you think of a human being solely that way, you've actually de-divinized the human. There's no soul, there's no spirit. It's just this animal that is always trying to maximize its utility. There's nothing wrong with that model as long as you understand that it's limited. It doesn't explain, it doesn't reveal, unfold the fullness of a human being. To think of a human being as, a, as homo economicus is okay in certain instances where you're trying to understand economic behavior, but there's more going on than just economics for a human being. You know, we're willing to be altruistic. There are instances where a father or a mother are willing to suffer to lay down their life. And you could argue, well, yes, they're maximizing their utility by making sure that the genes of the family go forward and their children, so they're sacrificing themselves. But people will throw their bodies, uh, they'll, they'll physically give their life. You're not maximizing your utility when you lay your life down, when, you, when your blood pours out on the ground. I'm sorry, because your utility's over at that point. You're being altruistic. You're transcending just your selfish desires and needs and wants. There's something else. There's something holy something transcendent, something metaphysical, beautiful happening, something greater than you happening when you're willing to lay your life down. But Marx, his lens, the way he understood human beings and society was through an economic model, and that's what Marxism is. So it's mainly economic in the sense that that's the lens that it understands the person and the society but it's not limited to economics. And this is why in a Marxist country, they force everyone to behave certain ways because the, the centralized government has to have total control to make the vision work. The dream is for this perfect society. And the only way we can get it to be perfect is we get everybody to adhere and behave and get in line. And that's what you see happening here in the U.S. And so you see these, these Gnostic representative governments trying to redivinize society, they're very totalitarian. And, and the more radical the emanatization, meaning the more aggressive they're trying to create this heaven on earth, uh, they become more openly hostile to Christianity because, because they, they tend to try to abolish it. And this is why you hear language, as you look historically, I've been talking about Marxism in the Soviet Union, China, they're very hostile. In some instances, have it made Christianity illegal. Uh, some instances, they've been a little bit more flexible. That ebbs and flows. At times, China's been like turn a blind eye. A lot of Christian missionaries have been able to go over there and establish underground house churches. And China's been kind of like hands off. Then all of a sudden, boom, they drop the boom and it's over. You can't get in. You're not invited back. You're escorted out and they shut stuff down. But that really radical emanatization, uh, that really radical Gnostic um, effort to create heaven on earth, this secularized, I should say utopia, that's really the, the secular version, which, you know, that it's openly hostile to Christianity and they try to abolish it because Christianity is a, a dangerous uh, to, it, it's a threat. It's a competing reality. It's a competing kingdom. It's a competing vision for humanity, the future, hope, etc. And so the Gnostic, kind of like Cain and Abel, you know, the Gnostic 
drive the Gnostic uh, movement tries to kill its brother. So the issue here is that Gnosticism has two dangers. They're related to each other. And these dangers are self-defeating. So the hope here is, and I'm not going to, I'll just make a side comment. Vogelin gets into a whole aspect in this last chapter about Hobbes, the philosopher and economist, that comes up with a way forward. He sees the problem with the Gnostic movements. He sees the issue with the de-divinization of society. And he tries to find a way forward. And America was founded on the principles that Hobbes laid forth. I am not qualified to go to even scratch the surface of what Hobbes came up with. So I'm not going to really get into it. But essentially, he tried to come up with this. And Vogelin sings his praises. Uh, but Hobbes comes up with this idea that you can't have civil government. That in Hobbes, I think, is quite, I mean, for his, for his era, hostile to to Christianity uh, and, and Gnosticism. But his argument is like, look, you, it's not like the church has, or, or, the, or the church men have these holy intentions. Every human being has a lust for power. And some of them kind of cloak it in Christianity and wanting to do good. Others cloak it more in a Gnostic movement of just do goodism without the church. But, but, you know, and others don't even try to cloak it. They're just, you know, just avarice and raw lust for power, and they try to accomplish these things. And Hobbes saying, I'm not buying any of it. None of it's good. We don't trust any of these people. So what we need is for everyone to kind of be looking for their own, uh, how would you say it? Not just fulfillment, but they're, they're looking for... Um, they're, they're looking for their own interests and you need to fuse them together in this group saying, look, we're in this together. You get the Commonwealth. Again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this justice. And the Commonwealth is re represented by a sovereign. So you get all these souls kind of come together almost into this giant entity called the Commonwealth. And then you have this Commonwealth represented by the sovereign. And this is, I think he called the book Leviathan. This is his concept of Leviathan. Essentially, a Leviathan is the sovereign that, that is the representation of the, of the common souls fused together. And he's this mortal God under the immortal God. Now, I, I, and, his, and his job is really just to make sure that, there's, that, that we have peace and that we're def, um, you know, peaceful, defended society. And our job is to make sure that... that uh, He's obeyed, et cetera. I, I'm not qualified to comment on this. And I think, you know, if you, if you don't have the background, you read Vogelin's comments, you, it's clear he's making these comments to people that have the context to know what he's talking about. So I'm not saying you can't read it and go, I don't, you know, you, you don't read it and go, I have no idea. But like, there's so much more to unpack. For this to be meaningful, I would need to then dig into, I'd probably have to read Leviathan, which probably well, not going to happen anytime soon. Not because I'm not interested, it's just there's no time for that. And, you know, my work, the project that I'm working on, uh, relates more to, you know, to, to, to business and um, strategy and so on. And so I'm not just not going to spend the time, maybe when I'm retired. Uh, so keep listening, ladies and gentlemen, when we get to episode number 6042, we'll address Leviathan. Anyway. Let's talk about Gnosticism, though. So there's a whole area that, that, that Vogelin talks about regarding Hobbes and Hobbes' solution. Uh, it, it's a workable solution. America was founded on it. I'm not in a place to articulate that quite well today. And I want to focus on something I actually think is more interesting, more interesting to me, and I think more salient for us, because although Hobbes' solution was good, and when, when Vogelin you know, gave these talks and wrote the book in the 50s, early 50s, there was hope. He's looking at America going, hey, we got a pretty good system here. It's working really well. The Gnostics are at the door and they've kind of gotten their nose under the tent, but there's still time. Like if we're smart about this, America can be the pathway forward for the world. Well, here we are, uh, you know, 70 years later and the Gnostics have taken over. The Gnostics, the Democrats, the progressives, the liberals, the positives, the scientists, scientists. Um, these folks have taken over society and they are trying to create a heaven on earth. This whole woke project, all of this stuff, transgenderism, wokeism, DEI, critical theory, all this stuff 
is a Gnostic effort, and it's and to to create this supposed heaven on earth, where you can see it's a it's a nightmare. And one of the things that they do, and this gets at one of their dangers, is they they will. Well, let me talk about that. Let me let me just finish that thought because often sometimes I'll say, well, let me talk about that in a minute, and I forget. They will blame others for their failures, but we'll get to that. All right. So the two dangers, Gnosticism has two inherent dangers, and these dangers are self-defeating. And this gives us some hope. Now, the question for me is, and I'll share what they are, but they're self-defeating, but that doesn't mean that they're self-defeating in 10 years. It doesn't mean that they're self-defeating immediately. It could take 50 years for this thing to work out, 100 years or, or shorter, and, and it will absolutely uh, cause misery, bloodshed, and, and, and hurt. I mean, this isn't one of these things that gets solved at the ballot box. I think people have to understand. I don't mean to say that we have to be violent. I just think we have to understand the nature of what's happening because the nature of what is happening does not end well. And if you look at Gnostic movements in other nations in in more recent history, these were not these didn't end peacefully. They didn't they didn't progress peacefully peacefully. Uh, Millions. I mean, if you look at between China, communist China, and Soviet Russia. Hundreds of millions of people murdered. I mean, think about that. Hundreds of millions of people murdered in, in, in the prosecution, execution, and management of those nations. And then, of course, the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was a little messy. Um, you know, we've yet to see the dissolution of China. But here are the two dangers. The first one is the destruction of the truth of the soul. Gnosticism destroys the truth of the soul. Gnosticism does not understand, recognize, or allow for the truth of the human soul. It doesn't believe in a human as an eternal being. It doesn't believe in the transcendent, the metaphysical, the spiritual aspect of a human soul. You are just an animal. It's materialist. And so when you die, you're dead. And it doesn't leave room for eternity, for anything beyond us, anything greater than us. There's a hopelessness and there's a dehumanization because the thing that makes us, one of the things that makes us unique and special is the eternal aspect of the human soul. And so Gnosticism destroys the truth of the human soul. Now, the second thing it does, which is related, and these two things together make this self-defeating, uh, is this, our self-defeating kind of aspects. The second thing is, boy, talk. Can you talk today, Gaston? I think so. The second thing it does is it rejects the truth of reality. And this, you see this every day. Gnosticism rejects the truth of reality. Now, you can go all the way to President Biden. They'll come out, you know, just this administration. Biden himself is just like a walking joke machine just because he can't articulate. He's so, I mean, mentally numb. He can't articulate. And I'm not saying that as a right-wing Republican. It's just if you look, if you're honest, you look and listen to Biden, he he just is incapable. He's he's a doddering old man. I'm sorry to say it, but he is. Uh, But if you listen to this administration, they're not just spinning. You know, we got this whole like PR spin. It's like, well, we're trying to do this, but we're going to spin something to kind of create a little cover so that we can do what we want to do. No, I mean, they they will talk about things as if it's just like there's a lack of reality. You look at our border situation and they act like it's not a big deal. You look at the economy, they tell you it's doing great. I mean, just everything. And and again, there's an element of every administration, right and left, that spins. I get that. But this administration, and it's not just Biden and it's not just the Democrats, it's this Gnostic movement rejects the truth of reality. Case in point, a man cannot be a woman. And a woman cannot be a man. It's just straightforward. It's just, it just is the truth of reality. And we and our doctors, we, we can do all kinds of surgeries. And we can give people all kinds of uh, drug therapy and all these things. But no matter what we've done, we have not transformed a man into a woman. We have not transformed a woman into a man. We've butchered these people. We've maimed them. We've destroyed aspects of their sexuality and their, and, their, and their God-given nature. We've done all kinds of things to them. We've definitely, they don't stop being a man. You go through the military, you're in a war, you're a guy, you get your limbs blown off, you're still a man. You might be a maimed, halt man, but you're still a man. So you, you had this, 
rejection of reality, like, no, I'm, you know, like we have to all pretend now together. You have to celebrate. We, here are my pronouns. Here's my new name. And did you misgender me? And you're going to like, there's this aggressive hostility against reality. And it's not just with our sex, although that seems to be kind of the, you know, the, the thing of the day now. It's, it's identity politics. It's cultural Marxism, you know, but you start to create a world of delusion. And when people live in delusion, they make terrible decisions. They make wrong decisions. They, they are confused. They, they like, it's just, it's inoperable. It's actually an opportunity. I've, I've, <laughs> I've written a multi-page paper on this. I've not published it because kind of like the logical conclusion, of the paper is a bit troubling, but quite frankly, uh, and at some point I might publish it. Quite frankly, this is an opportunity for those that want to fight for what's good and right. The, the, the Gnostic left is, is committed to delusion. This is, it, it, they've rejected the truth of reality. And that's a fundamental flaw. That's a weakness that can be taken advantage of uh, if, anybody can, if anybody can kind of see a way forward on that. Um, so Gnosticism rejects the truth of the soul and it rejects the truth of reality. And these two things are dangers that become self-defeating for Gnosticism because they end up turning these two things into political action. It'd be one thing to say, I just don't, I just don't believe, you know, that... Um, I don't believe that like a baby in the womb is really a human being. And I think it's the woman's choice and I think it's her body. And if she doesn't want to have the baby, who am I to say? And if you just had an opinion, okay, big deal. But as soon as you see Gnostics embrace that kind of thing, they turn it into political action. They start making laws around this, which means then that people start doing things like having abortions. Now, of course, taking the life of a human being, an innocent human being, a baby, is horrendous. It's terrible. And there are ramifications for that alone. But what nobody talks about is, is the, the horrible damage done to the, to the mother. And so we, you have this sense of delusion, a, a rejection of reality. No, it's fine. It's legal. It's safe. You're a monster if you think otherwise. Oh, it's the handmaiden's tale. You white male want to just enslave women. And so people, so you have political action, laws put in place and, and promotions for this thing. And, and not just laws put in place, billions of dollars poured into organizations like Planned Parenthood that promote both the behavior that leads to unplanned pregnancies, pregnancies out of wedlock, et cetera, and then also promote like, we'll take care of it. How about that? The government gives you a ton of money to create the market that then you could sell things to. How's that? So, and, so what ends up happening is, is people take advantage of this. They're, they're, they're living in a world of delusion. They think it's fine. And then they have abortions. And what they're doing is not just in a kind of theoretical sense or a religious sense, like they're damning their souls. They're destroying themselves. They can't sleep at night. They have depression anxieties. They have to be medicated. Their, their souls are hollowed out. This is wicked. This is evil. You know, there's a lot of like anger at people that have abortions and so on, but like these people are killing themselves unknowingly. Yeah. A lot of times they're arrogant and a lot of times they're in your face and they're like, I'm proud, you know, that I'm doing this. But in the end, they're the victim. I mean, yes, their child is the victim, obviously, but they're the victim. They have to live with this and they can't. It's hard. They end up medicated, abusing alcohol. They have all kinds of problems in relationships. They struggle to have another child. I mean, you can often miscarry afterwards. You can have cancer issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all the data is there. And by the way, a lot of this data comes from the Guggenheim Foundation, which is Planned Parenthood's own research arm. So <laughs> I think it's Guggenheim. I might be, you know, Guttmacher, sorry, Guttmacher Institute, Guggenheim. I knew when I said this, like, close but no cigar, Mike. Didn't sit right. So Guttmacher, Guttmacher, Guttmacher Institute, this is Planned Parenthood's research arm or sister organization. And a lot of this data is there. It's just suppressed. 
So this is an example of where you see Gnosticism rejects reality and then rejects the truth of the soul. And it's a problem because it leads to political action. That political action has massive societal impacts. And so you get a society oriented around delusion. You get a society that's representing delusion and living delusion. And I'm not talking about they're deluded, meaning they're kind of so into Game of Thrones or Harry Potter, they're, they're no earthly good. Like, oh, I'm so into, like, you, know, you get a bunch of dirty nerds playing video games. Huge ramifications for the society, for humanity. People are just miserable and they're medicated and unhappy. It's sick. It's a, it's a human sickness, sickness of the soul. This leads to a self-defeating aspect for Gnosticism. It's not supportive. It can't, self-support, it can't self-sustain. And I mentioned earlier, what ends up happening is rather than saying, well, hang on a second, I think we got it wrong. Hold on a second, guys. You know, we were saying like a guy can be a girl and he ought to be, or she, sorry, my bad, didn't mean to uh, use the wrong pronoun. uh, She ought to be able to wrestle and women's wrestling and uh, do kickboxing and all that and get all the awards. And by the way, you can have abortions. And by the way, we don't have to have people working for the economy to, to work and we'll just take all the tax money. Like all the delusion you can come up with, they just do all, they don't stop and go, guys, I think we made a mistake here. No, they need a scapegoat. They blame it on somebody else. So who do you think they blame it on? Ultimately, they blame it on the Christians. Ultimately, they blame it on the Christians. That's your cause. So there is hope, ladies and gentlemen, and that hope is that Christ is going to come back and he is going to bring his kingdom in its fullness. That's one hope. If you don't know him, this is my altar call, kids. I'm sorry, I got to do it. If you don't know him, you can. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks and whoever will open it, he will come in and sup with him. That's my paraphrase. If I didn't get it quite right, forgive me. And I did take that verse out of context a little bit. But the truth of the matter is Christ has lived. He's God made flesh. He lived a perfect sinless life and he died for our sins. He was accused unjustly and murdered. The pure lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. And not only that, not only did he die for our sins, this is the really amazing part. After three days, he picked his life back up again. He resurrected from the dead and appeared. There are accounts, historic accounts, proven accounts of him appearing to the apostles, the disciples, and so on. He came back and then he ascended to heaven and said, I will go and make a place for you and I'll come back. So if you're listening to this and you're saying, I don't have any hope, this whole Gnostic thing, I see it. It's disgusting. I'm angry. I'm getting my guns. You know, we've got to fight this thing. Look, I'm, I'm all for living this life and living it to the fullest and doing what's right in the face of adversity and evil. I'm not a pacifist. I'm not preaching that we sit here and just, you know, wait it out. We have to do what's right. We have to defend the defenseless. We have to fight on behalf of the orphan, the widow. We have to be just and moral and good. Men, we need to be men. And women, we need to be women in the fullest sense. We have to represent the truth of God's kingdom now in this world, not meaning that we're trying to create heaven on earth, but we have to show what it looks like for a human being to be transformed into the image of Christ. But if you're sitting here saying, I see all this, but I don't know this Jesus, you can, and I would encourage you to seek him out. Seek him out. I'm no preacher. I'm no evangelist. I'm no expert, but I'll tell you what, if you want to know more, Get in touch with me. Just email me, mike at mikegaston.com. This isn't my bit. This isn't my shtick. You can listen to every other podcast. I don't think I've ever done an altar call before on a podcast, but I just feel this needs to be said today. If you have no hope, you can, because first, Christ gives us hope. His kingdom is true and eternal. It's full right now, and it is coming in its fullness to this earth. It is. And whether you live to see that day or not, if you know him, you will be with him for eternity. 
If you want help with this, talk to me. Get in touch. I'll make the time. But we can also have hope because Gnosticism cannot self-sustain. And yes, it will get ugly. Yes, it will go bad. But if we understand the truth and we know the truth and we're willing to live the truth in courage, as Solzhenitsyn talked about in his essay before he left the Soviet Union, we live not by lies. We refuse to submit to the lies. This is what the totalitarian government does. It forces you to live this delusion. It says it denies, it, it destroys the truth of the soul. It says that it rejects the truth of reality, and it forces everyone to embrace this delusion. That's the only way that it can work. It's this classic, like everybody's going around saying the emperor's clothes are beautiful until one kid goes, he's naked, he ain't got no clothes on. <laughs> and then the whole thing falls apart. Well, we have to live not by lies. That's what he told, Solzhenitsyn told his followers before he left, before he was... Uh, uh, pushed out of um, Russia. He wrote this essay. You have to have the courage to not live by the lies. And if you're unwilling to live by the lies, the lies cannot be sustained. They'll throw everything at you. You, you know, we, we lionize a man, in these days a woman, going off to war, willing to give their life on something they believe in, the flag, the country, the family. That's great. We can, but we have to have that same courage today because we are enemies in our own country, in our own society. We have to have the courage to say, I'm not living by the lies. I'm not letting the federal government, the state government, my city government force me to live a lie. I will live the truth with courage. And in so doing, I will resist the Gnosticism, the Gnostic movement, the delusion. And in so doing, I'll hopefully see other people set free. You know, I'm coming up on a year of sobriety. I quit drinking on February 5th, 2023. It's been phenomenal. And uh, when when I hit the year mark, if I hit the year mark, which I believe I will, God willing, I'll do a little bit of talking about it. But the reason I want to just mention that right now is, you know, as I'm talking about this live not by lies and and having the courage to live the truth in the face of adversity and hostility, it will set other people free. One thing that's been really remarkable to me, which I just, it just never even crossed my mind, was the fact that I'm living sober now, that I'm not drinking. I've had people come up to me and go, which surprisingly, like not, not people where I was like, you know, and I sat this guy down and I told him, you got to stop drinking. I'm not doing that. I'm just like, I'm sharing with people like, yeah, you know, it was just getting in the way. You know, I was drinking too much. I didn't do anything I was ashamed of. I started having a cocktail at 4, 4.30 every day and I was just gassed out. I was waking up thinking about what well, would be great to drink later today. Like it was getting in my head. You know what I mean? I never got behind the wheel soused. I, I, I you know, I wasn't like running around chasing the girls and Lydia was going to, you know, leave me away. It, it, the finances were in fine shape. I just, you know, was drinking too much and it was just getting in the way. I, there's work I want to do like this and I need to be clear-minded and energetic and focused. And I just said, you know what, I got to make this go. And maybe someday I'll have a glass of wine or cocktail in the future, you know, when maybe I don't feel like I've got the level of responsibility I have right now, but there's work I want to do. But but I'm not out there preaching the gospel that everybody ought to be sober. And I, you know, like if you enjoy a glass of wine or five, you know, that, I, it doesn't bother me. You know, and I'm not over here going, well, you know, uh, I'm not like a reformed drinker that's now hostile to drinking. I love drinking. It was great, but I just, it was just in the way. Okay. I bring this up to say, I'm not out there preaching it. I'm not hiding it, but I'm not preaching, but I've been surprised the number, and it's been a number of people have come up to me and said, Hey, uh, I just want to tell you like a few months ago, you know, we're out and you said, you you know, cause we're having dinner and you, you didn't have a drink and you told me to stop drinking. It kind of got me thinking, and, and I haven't had a drink in a month now. Like, and it's been great. Like a number of people, or, or people said, I'm, I, you know, I've dialed back. Like, you know, I'm not drinking. Like, I, I realize, like, I'm drinking too much, and you kind of inspired me. And I guess what I'm getting at here is that when we live the truth with courage, and I don't mean I'm not saying that being sober is the truth. It's it's an analogy, folks. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a parallel. When we have the courage to live the truth in the face of delusion, it will inspire other people to say, you know what, I want that too. And if Mike can do that and Sally can do that and Bob can do that, I have the courage now to do it too. I'm going to stand with them and uh, live for the truth. So ladies and gentlemen, we can have hope. Gnosticism 
It's on the ascendant, but it is self-destructive because it does not respect the reality of the human soul. It does not respect the truth of reality. And because of that, it will fall apart. And we can have hope because Christ, through it all, reigns supreme. I really appreciate you guys taking some time to listen. I would love to hear from you. You can uh, get in touch, as I said before, Mike at MikeGaston.com. If you disagree, if you're offended, that's fine too. I've got relatively thick skin, so you can can let me have it. That's fine. Um, I do want you to know that I care about you. I love you. And I'm very grateful for this podcast, the opportunity to speak and share. I'm very grateful for you, my audience, and uh, I wish nothing but the best for you. So guys, I love you all, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers.